Hello, this is Mark here with uh, just a little post-production note. The audio on this week's episode is mostly fine uh, up until towards the end where my uh, vocal line goes just it goes a little bit quiet. Um, I've tried to fix it a little bit in post-production, but there's a bit of distortion around it, so if I turn it up too loud, uh, my voice and the vocal track would get really distorted. So uh, just be aware of that. Uh, about five minutes towards the end, just my voice goes a little bit quiet. Uh, so apologies for that, apologies for any inconvenience, um, but hey, enjoy the rest of the episode uh, in, in the normal quality that you'd expect, and uh, yeah, thanks for listening. And welcome to Link to the Cast. This is episode 152. I am your party host this week. I am the platforming prodigy Mark Robinson. And with me, as always, is the Roman Reigns of the professional podcasting world. It's Jack Lazell. Jack, how are you? Honk. I'm good. I am. I am Honk Robinson. (laughs) I must admit, Honk Robinson would be a really good, like, ring wrestling name for you. I just think what a gimmick that would be. I mean, like, the your, goose... your intro is just, eh, and then, like, your music plays, and you come down to the ring, and then you just, like, there's, like, a build-up point in the song, and then everyone honks in unison. The, the goose is the realest heel in the room. Imagine Honk versus the Honky Tonk Man. No, it'd be Honk versus Hulk. Hulk versus Honk? Yeah. Honk versus Rock? Honk versus Honky? Oh, all the possibilities. How are you, my friend, besides honking great? I am absolutely honktastic. Yeah, uh, yeah I'm, I'm good, thanks, mate. Yeah, it's uh, just getting on with the week so far. Been decent. Seen Chelsea obliterate a tiny team from Grimsby 7-1. I mean, uh, that can't be particularly satisfying, really. Oh, it was fun. Like The average age of our team was like Amoeba, which was quite <laughs> fun to observe. Uh, I, I saw a talk with Matthew Syed, who came into my work, who's a very excellent journalist slash podcaster, uh, and thoroughly recommend anybody reading his books and stuff, which was pretty cool. And yeah, here I am on the phone to my old buddy, old pal. How are you doing, sir? Yeah, I mean, as mentioned to you before we started recording, I got a pension today, so I guess I'm officially an adult now. Is that how it works? I actually think that is how it works. Yeah. I think if you've got... There's a few, like, hurdles to skip over, but pension is definitely one of them. Because that's when you start to imagine yourself as, like, an old man in a cardigan with oh, yeah, slippers. Like, I mean, he was he was going through and he's like, so, you know, when do you think you'll retire? I don't fucking know. What's the retirement age? 68. <laughs> well, sure, we'll go with that then. Next week? <laughs> I was like, I might be kicked out of the fucking country before I even get a chance to put any money into it, but that's a whole... When do you think you'll retire? Conservative estimate, 96. Yeah, well, it's like, well, when when do I think I'll retire, and what will the actual retirement age be by the time I get to, you know, then? Because I'm sure we'll add another 10 years on by then, depending on who's in charge at the time. But, um, yeah. yeah, he went through, and he... Uh, he went through all this stuff about investments and bonds and a whole bunch of stuff that 
I'm not particularly well versed in. Um, I have to ask a small question before you proceed. Sure. He wasn't representing a Nigerian prince, was he? No, no, he was Okay, good. I just want to double check in there. He he was a very friendly and very uh, well-professional and very well-spoken member of the AIB uh, bank here in Dublin. So he went through and explained everything clearly to me and, you know, I had a, a... I had enough knowledge of what was going on and he explained things in a way that I could understand in my simplified world. But, you know, I have a pension now, so I, that's it. Life's over, I guess. Just, it's the grind from here on out. <laughs> with, with that extremely uh, pleasant tone, should we get on and, and talk about some video games? Because I know, think it's pretty obvious what we've both been playing this week. That sounds fair to me. Playing this week. Hey, check it out. I learned the baseline from Final Fantasy 2. Scott, you are the salt of the earth. Oh, thanks. I meant scum of the earth. Thanks. <clears throat> honk. 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 <laughs> um, honk. Now, Me now, too. in fairness, I do have actually a fair few things that I've been playing. Like, there's been a bunch of games that have come out over the last couple of weeks. Um, but... I'll probably save them for next week because uh, so we've been playing a game called uh, Blasphemous, which is this uh, Metroidvania set basically in a tone very similar to like a Bram Stoker novel, um, huh. and I've really been enjoying it. But uh, I think I'm about halfway to about fifty five percent of the way through, so I'll probably um, come back to that next week. And I've also been playing uh, Sayonara Wild Hearts, uh, which is a game that. Won't actually take that long to finish by the looks of it, but I have a lot that I want to talk about that. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll shortly, I'll quickly summarise that it's basically like a Wicked and Divine comic put into a video game set to the Church's, church's soundtrack. Uh, it's it's pretty fucking cool. Um, but we'll, yeah, we'll, I'll, I'll probably talk about that a lot more uh, next week. And I would definitely recommend uh, having a look at that, Jack, before next week. Um, but yeah, cool. we'll, we'll get on to yeah. that. But in I'll the meantime... Uh, the Bastard Goose Game, also known as Untitled Goose Game. Uh, this came out ooh, over the weekend, I think, or just before the start of last weekend. Friday, maybe? Sorry, something, something like about that. that. Uh, and quickly, uh, I had the game... Uh, so I think they announced that the game was being released about 9am uh, Pacific time. Uh, but it was on the Switch store around about 1 o'clock in the afternoon. So I I, I kept refreshing the, the e-store, waiting to see when it would pop up. Uh, so I had it pretty much straight away. Uh, only played it for about 10-20 minutes uh, but you know had a quick glance at like what this thing was and um, I don't want to do I, I mean I don't know if the game has spoilers but I'll ask first of all Jack how much of the game have you played so I've got to the second uh, big area basically okay. I haven't played an awful lot of it okay, um, so about the same comparatively maybe about maybe about 45 minutes to an hour I would say of gameplay yeah, yeah. Okay, so we're, I'd say we're about the same place then. Um, now, this game was first. I think there was a, a teaser trailer. I want to say about two years ago or so. And it, was it that long ago? I think so. I might be off by a, a year, but it was definitely within the last two years. And it just was literally like, "Here is a goose, and you're a bastard." Cool. There you are. Um, and it hasn't really expanded on that since, certainly from playing the game. It is, you are a goose, you are a bastard. Uh, but I'm fine with that. I'm fine with... <laughs> Here's exactly what it does on the tin. 
Um, I've seen comparisons to, or not comparisons, but like influences or from like Hitman in the way that the game kind of works is this sort of sandboxy like goose man yeah like this kind of sandboxy you just kind of fuck around with stuff and see what happens you know you just work with the environment and and just you have all these toys in front of you to play around with and obviously there's less death involved but uh Jack give me what you think this game is and and, give me your description of the game um I mean, you just inhabit. I, I've got to say, I love the 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 world. It kind of feels a bit like. Did you ever see the old British sitcom Last of the Summer Wine? Yes. It kind of feels like a more colourful version of like a Last of the Summer Wine type environment. Um, and you're a goose, and you're just being an absolute bastard, and you are ruining everybody's day. You're stealing keys from from guys tending their garden you're locking kids in phone boxes you're ruining local businesses you're honking your way onto television screens it's just an absolute ball but it is very do you know what this is another weird comparison mark but it kind of feels a bit like a, a sort of you know when the tony hawk games first went free roam yeah <laughs> and because you can uh, you can do your tricks you can honk you can get your wings out and stuff but you've got a checklist. So you've got your little checklist and your checklist is basically ways to just be a general public menace. Uh, and, and you use your goosey powers of grabbing things and honking at things and flapping your wings around to to generally just be a bastard. And it's so much fun. It, it, it's so you think it sounds one dimensional or whatever, but it, it's I can't explain I think it's one of those things that if you see it for like a few minutes, you just immediately kind of fall in love with the concept of it. What I, do you reckon? I, I think that you you definitely get a sense of the humour right off the, the bat by it simply says press Y to honk. Uh, yeah. Which is... I mean, the fact that you start in that little, like, you're not on screen, you just see a bush, press Y to honk, and then you honk and the bush vibrates and stuff, and it's just cool straight away. Um, I, I love, like... The, the waddle, I guess, or the walk of the goose. Um, it's not, like... Because the goose isn't perfect. It doesn't control perfectly. You know, if you walk in a straight line with the goose and you try to turn left, like, you don't just immediately turn left. You kind of, cr- sort of, like you're in a car, you'll sort of drift off to the left, then you kind of have to stop and then turn yourself. And it's like the goose itself is trying strafe. to fight. You have to goose strafe. Yeah, but it's like the goose is fighting with you with the mechanics. Like, even to you, the goose is a bastard. And I, I enjoy that there's... The, it's not a complete struggle, and there's nothing in the game, really, that... You know, there's no real platforming involved. So if if you crash into, like, a gate or whatever, there's no kind of... It's, there's no failsafe, or there's no um, failure involved, really, with that. So I like that there's that slight struggle with the actual goose itself. Um, and as you say, you know, the, the world that's created, it's not a massive, expansive world, but you immediately, um, when you cross over the river and you, you kind of walk up to this gate and you don't, you're not giving any instructions at this point. Um, you just walk up to this gate and you start kind of fucking around and seeing what you can do. And at some point you'll, um, you'll do something and you'll, you'll cross off this objective and like this I got you know this this notepad appears and it says um, 
raking the lake and it crosses out and I'm like okay what was that and you look through the menus and you press the select button you realise there's a whole menu of just like things to do which require being a bastard and it's like you know throw the, the rake in the lake make the uh, uh, gardener wear his sunflower hat um, make a picnic all this kind of stuff and you just for the first 30 minutes of just dragging things around as a goose and just playing with this world and seeing what's available uh, you know, turning on the tap as uh, the gardener's near the sprinkler to, to soak him and you know, it's you expand on that the variations of the theme, as you get into the second area, you have this boy who's uh, playing with a football and you just go up to him honk at him and he's like the first per- character where he's terrified of you because uh, up to that point the, the gardener is like he's trying to shoo you away but with the kid he's terrified of you and you know you chase him and you get him trapped in a phone booth and you're just honking away at him and you, it's just it's completely fucking ridiculous uh, but I am having a great time with it yeah same I uh I can't wait to see, like, a, a, I think because I'm only in the second or the third, I'm not sure, area, I can't wait to see how much more there is and how many areas and whether it kind of continues in its sort of homely northern town feel to it or whether it expands and, and goes into a bit more of a, a random set of scenarios. But it's just, yeah, it's a nice, there's like a sort of jangly, sort of like, you know, upright piano soundtrack to it that kind of sounds like it's being played by a primary school music teacher like there's everything about it is a bit shonky like you said even the way the goose waddles around it's a bit chaotic you know you're causing chaos there's a sort of joy in the imperfect nature of everything about the game and it it, it just gives it character this is a game that you immediately just and um, just hook onto the character and the feel of it, and yeah, I, I'm I'm loving it, absolutely loving it. And mention there about the the soundtrack and the piano. This is the second game this year where I've uh, really enjoyed the soundtrack, and it's not so much you know from uh, it being a, a being a specific composition or something, but just the dynamics of it and how the soundtrack uh, works around the actions of what you're doing and the the first game to do that this year was Ape Out uh, which was more percussion and jazz based where this one is as you kind of mentioned it's like a child playing a piano um, but it works in the just kind of ramshackle nature of the game uh, and yeah it, it's like it's not a soundtrack you can listen to uh, you know I typed in Untitled Goose Game OST and there was nothing to listen to but it just it works <laughs> I bet you never thought you would write that yeah I know words one after another yeah 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 um, but yeah, it's just, you know, if you think of it like, um, like Hitman in that it has that kind of Rune Goldberg thing where you, you do something that gives, it sets off a chain reaction of things. It's that kind of thing. And if you've played Hitman, it's that sort of thing. Um, just there's less death involved. Um, yeah. That I, reminds me, uh, actually the other thing I have played this week is the new Hitman map. Oh, okay. Yes. Talk to me. I mean, it. It's just beautiful, mate. It's um, so the island. The idea of the the main sort of mission is that you've got these three people that are responsible for um, the creation of like new identities of people, and they're all on this sort of paradise style island. And you've got like the main guy who's sort of like a ri- almost Richard Branson esque, because you know, like Richard Branson lives on a extremely wealthy island somewhere in the middle of the Caribbean or whatever. Um, but it's kind of half resort so it's 
it's like a cross between like a Hokkaido style level, but like a bit more like um, the uh, San, Santa Fortuna. So it's a kind of hybrid between those two. And it's just like pitch perfect, beautiful, like white sand, blue seas. Like there's loads of chefs and stuff cooking up things and there's loads of like cool little um bungalow type places that you can go in and like it's just yeah it looks incredible i i, I loved it I, I haven't spent long with it but it's just another one that they've whacked out of the park because i mentioned how much i love the bank one on that previous um episode and yeah they've just whenever they create a level there's there's just a level of artistry to it that you you don't get in many games, but uh, yeah, I'm I'm very much enjoying that. And at some point, I might have a more detailed analysis. But the the mission, the main mission, I've just managed to get over the line once and haven't really gone back and tried to sort of perfect my method or anything so far. But yeah, it's it's a lot of fun, especially the Richard Branson type guy taking him out because he's like quite difficult to get to with a few goons and stuff around him. So yeah. It's a good stuff, uh, but then when is Hitman ever a letdown? What's the um, what's the rollout been on uh, content with Hitman Two? Um, so the bank I want to say was maybe three four months ago, um, and I didn't get around to it until very recently because uh, there's a guy who plays Hitman to a disgusting level of accuracy. Uh, on on youtube called mr freeze 2244 i want to say his name is so back in the day i watched watched a bunch of his um hitman runs or whatever and then it just cropped up a a few weeks back like this bank level of hitman and i'm like wow that looks incredible so that made me want to pick it up again and then they've they do stuff every month which i think is really cool so every month they'll have a, a specific roadmap so they'll be like right because in each level there are like little things that you can create like they do escalations where you know you start off and you've got to take out one person and maybe do one thing and then you replay it and you've got to take out two people and do that one thing and then the last one you have to take out three people and do two things kind of you ever done the play through the escalations um i don't think i have like i haven't played hitman since i mean i haven't actually played hitman 2 at all um Oof. Yeah, I, mean, I just, it, I just it, never got around to it. Very, very good, mate. Uh, just play Miami and it'll make you want to play the whole game because it's, it's incredible. But So they'll, they'll have like one of those a month. They'll have the elusive target, which will be either in a sort of new, new school world or an old school world. Uh, and then I th- there's, this is the second of the new levels that they've rolled out. But every month there's usually like three four extra things and if you go through the escalations or the new challenges like they they add into the levels you get additional items and stuff in the game so you're not even like spending any money or anything to get it and the only thing you'd spend money on is to get the like two new levels which is the expansion pass but even then there's so much to do like that if you've got hitman 2 and like the the full edition you get all of the old like levels all of the new levels and then all of these sub challenges and levels that you could go through like there's just infinite amount of content and they've created such a fantastic world there all right i mean i i have so much to play at a moment so like getting <laughs> it's getting to, to that time of year isn't it yeah no. there's just like so much stuff to do but um 
I mean, you and and Dave gave nothing but glowing reviews of Hitman Two, and you know, I did enjoy hit the original Hitman, so I should get around to it at some point. The the annoying thing for me with Hitman Two is that it came out in late November last year, yeah, because it would have been higher up my game of the year, I think. And they it they w- just dropped all the content for it in one go. They did they didn't just like release like one level at a time. No, they were just like, yeah, here's six new levels yeah. and a bunch of other stuff and the whole first game if you want to replay it. There that's you go. pretty cool. That's, it is cool. That's a really good deal. IO Interactive are fucking awesome. <laughs> They're just a, one of those video... There's a few video game companies that are left carrying the banner for um, for like how to interact with your community and how to make and develop a game that people want to play without flooding it full of unnecessary microtransactions and they are a shining example of that i would say well with that very glowing endorsement uh unless you have anything else to talk about shall we get on to the news let's do it news on the mark So, Jack, starting off today, uh, so it was announced uh, a couple of days ago that Google were going to launch their their counterpart, I guess, to the Apple Arcade, which is the Google Play Pass. Uh, Now, the first thing I saw was people saying, oh, they're just copying Apple's idea. Yes, because something like this gets um, kind of established within a couple of days after your competitor makes their announcement, though. This was definitely some time in the making. Um, But... Anyway. Anyone with an app store should be trying to do this. Yeah. And, you know, uh, and- s- subscription services are all the range at the moment. So I'm not surprised that um, both of these companies are doing this. Yeah. Still waiting for Disney Plus to drop and seeing what that content hit is going to be like. Yeah. Yeah. Although we have a lot of uh, stuff already announced for that, actually. So, um, yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm curious to see how that turns out. But Google Play Pass, they've announced for four ninety nine per month, Android users will get access to over 350 games and apps, which will be uh, ad-free, uh, ad-free, sorry, and without any in-app purchases. Uh, Google will give users 10 days free and is also planning on offering the first year at one ninety nine per month. Um, it'll be available in the US this week and other countries soon in air quotations um so apple uh announced apple arcade which is also a 499 games subscription service or only games uh where google play pass will include apps as well uh secondly with this though uh, google isn't directly funding development their development nor demanding exclusivity um at launch all of the apps and games including google play pass um, will be available already available on the play store and will continue to be available as standalone purchases or ad supported. If you've previously installed any app that's including this service and sign up, your current app should automatically have its ads removed and its in-app purchases unlocked. Um, so with, I don't know if you've got Apple Arcade uh, on your iPhone. You have an iPhone. Do you still have an iPhone? I have an iPhone, yeah. I haven't got Apple Arcade yet, though, but I'm, I feel like it might happen. Uh, especially now I've seen that they've made Mini Motorway the sequel to Mini Metro on it. Which, yes. Yeah. I'm yeah. Need so it on it. I I really want to get my hands on um, Apple Arcade, um, but I'm waiting for the MacBook release because that's really the only way I have to play it. But the fact that they have this Google Play Pass that kind of has me tempted that I might just get this on my phone instead. Um, but I'll be curious to see how it works. Like what kind of connections i can make with controllers and stuff like that um 
I mean, both of these deals are incredible. You know, we're talking about yeah. 350 games, uh, 350 apps and games for Google, uh, over 100 games for Apple Arcade, and this will obviously expand over time. Um, and from everything I've seen uh, from other web, from other websites and, and games websites, um, a lot of these games are really good. Uh, I've I've heard nothing but glowing reviews. One of the games, Sayonara Wild Hearts, that I'm playing on Switch at the moment, you know, that's cost me. I think it was like 15 quid. And you can get that as part of this uh, subscription, which is just insane. Yeah, I mean, it's awesome. The instant collection of games. I mean, there's it's bound to be like anything. There's going to be like probably 50 of them you'll never play, but then there might be five or 10 that just makes it completely worth having it straight away. And considering the fact like Stardew Valley is in this, like that alone. Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I. You know what? I still haven't, started stardew valley ever and i i know it's gonna happen to me at some point i have it on my switch yeah you you know if it happens you're gonna get lost and you're gonna go far far down that well the rabbit hole yeah i am falling deep down that rabbit hole so yeah might have a a train trip or two coming up soon so yeah you never know yeah if i'm not honking (laughs) and like the thing that people have been talking about and they're kind of concerned about is like, how does this work for developers? Now, something that I don't know if it was officially declared, I'd have to look further into it, is that um, developers would be played by um, how much the game was uh, being paid, or how much the game was played. But when you think of some of the experiences on here, like Sayonara or Wild Hearts can, can, be, can be completed in about two hours. Um, hmm. And... You know, I think of indie games over the years that only a only a couple of hours long, and that kind of has me concerned that if that is the case, a lot of these devs are not going to be being paid the money they could be. Like, you know, it's not like Stardew Valley. Sure, you could sink two hundred hours into that easily. Um, so I am curious to see just how what the financial incentives for developers are, or whether you know Apple and Google are just giving developers a, 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 a cash up front. Uh, kind of like Epic have been doing for to have games exclusive to to their store, um, but you yeah. know, then still those games are still being sold independently by themselves. So uh, that's one of the things that um, I, I am concerned for developers. But uh, I, you know, the good thing for the consumer. I mean, for consumers, this is amazing, and it drives incentive more towards like premium titles and away from the free-to-play model and in-app purchases um so that is a positive because that's kind of that has cannibalized the the mobile gaming market over the past five years or so the lack of filtration yeah the only thing that i'd worry about with your previous point is that they have control over what games they would float to the top of their arcade so i guess developers that have a bit more clout can you know pay to have their app featured or whatever and then that just may be sticks their neck above everybody else's in reference to be able to get their eyeballs but then that isn't really app. any different to the app store now oh no of course not no you know um but i think now again i don't have it so um but i imagine it will have stuff like uh just you can check the view by uh latest games that have been released um maybe they have it uh, by um what's been rated by the the community i don't know i i just i really want to get my hands on either of them to just kind of see how those those two platforms work 
Yeah, uh, I, I I know because of the mini motorway thing that I will at some point succumb to Apple Arcade, and when I do, I'll, I'll bring it up on the show and I'll give you a, a rundown from my perspective. Jack, Sony's latest uh, state of play uh, took place uh, on when was it Tuesday? I think I can't remember. I've lost track of time. Uh, did you see this? Have you heard anything about the latest state of play? Uh, yeah, I saw bits and pieces from it, and I saw uh, some Death Stranding footage that they were talking about, and uh, like a couple of little news nuggets. Want to delve into those? Yeah, let's. We'll start at the top. Uh, the biggest thing by far is the announcement yeah. of uh, The Last of Us t- uh, Part Two. And somewhere it's... Barry Murphy is exploding this e- very minute. Yeah, so I think <laughs> I think we all figured this is the the main thing. I'd seen uh, journalists had been um, tweeting out about the fact that they were in America and that they were going to the state of play and kind of talking about uh, The Last of Us 2, but it's been officially announced that February 21st, 2020, everyone will be able to get a chance to play uh, the sequel to the very much uh, highly acclaimed Last of Us. February Um, 2020 is going to be absolutely insane. I'm pretty sure that's when Cyberpunk and Final Fantasy VII Remake come out as well. Uh, yeah, that's going to be a pretty insane month. Um, so we'll see how much time people have to get through all of those games. Oh, I'm just going to book the whole month off work, I think. Yeah, so I personally, I haven't actually watched the trailer myself, uh, personally, because I'm not too much interested in The Last of Us. Um, <gasps> but from the reactions, there were a bunch of reactions that came out today about the, I think it was like a three-hour demo that... Uh, journalists got a chance to play and it seems like from all accounts that it's really really good and refines on some of the issues from the original uh so if that's anything to go by then those that are a fan of the original should be in for a really good time hopefully fingers crossed Hmm. Uh, with that, we also got an announcement of a limited edition Death Stranding PS4 Pro bundle uh, with a controller that I'm sorry can only be described as piss-coloured. Uh, have you seen this thing? It is fucking hideous. Yeah, it's not just piss-coloured, it's see-through piss-coloured. But they massively missed out on make, making a see-through controller and not putting like a baby jar inside it. What, what are they even considering that it, for? It really reminds me, do you remember the um, the different variations of the Game Boy Color that they made that had the different like see-through? Yes, it kind I of have the purple one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This, is, this is hideous. This is really hideous. And the the PS... I don't care. I love it. <laughs> the PS4 Pro, it's, Pro itself uh, doesn't particularly inspire me as well. But uh, hey, whatever. Do you know, like um, the band, the rock band Kiss, when they made their comics, they actually put some of their blood right into the uh, into the red ink. Well, I mean, they made a coffin, so nothing yeah. you're saying here surprises me. But I just wonder if Kojima then just did contribute some of the stream of his own piss to make this piss color controller, because I feel like it's something he would do. Yeah. Well, is it like him and Del Toro and you know the whole Mackelson, like the whole of them have just just a bunch of lads pissing into a jar. Yeah. Just to be doled out across some plastic molding. Yeah, and they had to all piss into the same jar at the same time. It's the only way to do it logistically. 
And thank you for that nightmare scenario. Uh, Sony also announced Humanity, a very hard-to-describe-looking game uh, coming from the studio Enhance, led by Tetsuya Mizuguchi. Uh, hey, relative... Mark. Hey, Jack. Enhance. 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 So this is by the, the same uh, guy behind Res and Tetris Effect, and I don't know what the fuck this thing is, but... Uh, but it's it's definitely, you know, it catches your eye. Um, I don't know if you've seen this at all. It, it looks something like Lemmings, I guess. Um, I don't know what the fuck is going on with it, but it's definitely the most interesting thing that I saw from the this state of play. Yeah, it looks it looks really cool, but it's it's all one of those like really sort of conceptual looking things and you're not entirely sure necessarily what it is yet, but it did look it looked like something that was going in a different direction to a lot of what we're seeing. And I kind of like that. It feels like there's a lot of, uh, we're kind of with the whole loot boxy shitty thing in mainstream video games. There seem to be a lot of games that are just really doing their own thing at the moment. And that can only be a good thing. Yeah. And if it, if it holds any of the, uh, tone of Tetris effect, then I'm sure they will love it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Is it VR? That's what we need to know. Uh, Let me see, actually. Uh, It will have an optional VR mode. There you go. There you go. You can currently, right now, download a demo for the Medieval Remake. Uh, For anyone who isn't aware, Medieval was a PS1 hack and slack game. That hack and slash game, sorry. uh, That was pretty cool. I remember enjoying it back in the day. Um, I can't say I'm, like, you know, totally enthralled about a, a remake of it, but it's available to play, so. Uh, I might try and grab it this weekend and give it a run around. You ever played the original Medieval? Uh, uh, I played a demo disc of it, funnily enough. Remember when demo discs used to come free with, with PlayStation magazines? I do. Myself and friend of the show, Peter Wellington, on any given occasion when we talk, will usually bring up those PS1 demo discs at some point. Uh, they, were, they were top draw. Um, funnily enough, yeah, I think it was on a demo disc. I had like Abe's Odyssey on a demo disc as well. I think and a level of the Ants video game I seem to remember playing quite a it lot was an when Ants I was video game. There was an Ants video what? game, yeah. I remember I know. playing a Bug's Life. That was No, maybe good. it was a Bug's Life. Actually it was a Bug's Life, yeah, because you're an ant in a Bug's Life, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a Bug's Life. Sorry, I've I've misinformed you there. Apologies. But yeah. The uh, I remember playing the, that, funnily enough. That, so it'd be quite cool if I then downloaded the demo and then played the demo on like three generations later, all these years later, and see if it's the same demo level. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that would be a nice little touch. Uh, I don't know what part of the game uh, they'll be showing off, but yeah, I'm going to probably try and have a look at that and, uh, and report on that next week. Uh, we have Watam coming in December 2019 uh, by the creator of Katamari Damaki. Um, again, it's one of those things where it's like, I don't know what the fuck it is, but it certainly has the weirdness of a Katamari game, um, and it has the, the, the unique charm of, of a Katamari game. Um, it, but I have no idea what the fuck you're doing, to be quite honest don't really know haven't really seen much to do with this i would recommend at least looking up the trailer and then trying to figure you know it's it, clearly with 
Kojima and Death Stranding, everyone's idea of like a game trailer is just let's just make whatever the fuck we want and you know, people can figure out when it actually comes out what you actually do. Besides Untitled Goose Game, that's the one game where you look at it and you're like, okay, I'm a bastard. And you play it, right, I'm a bastard. Yeah, still don't know what Death Stranding is. <laughs> and, I mean, some might say that's probably for the best at this point. Cause, uh, I hope I never know what it means. Yeah. I hope I play through the entire game, really enjoy it, and still have no ability to draw any conclusions <laughs> as to what the fuck is going on. It's a complete piece of postmodernist art where the only thing that is innate to it is how much it alienates your sense of any idea of conceptual ideas. Yeah. So, yeah. <sighs> That's what I want. <laughs> Give me it. And finally, uh, Civilization uh, 6. No, sorry. Yeah. Uh, released on the PC back in 2016. Uh, is Do you mean Civilization VI? <laughs> VI, yeah. Uh, it's coming to the Switch and the ps4 and the xbox one uh pff, whatever when i heard civilization 6 i was like are we only on 6 i assume we'd be like civilization xxvii by now i've like, never played a civ game so i i pff, couldn't offer any kind of comment i mean the fact that you're calling them civ means that you're even more advanced than me <laughs> You know, I play, if it's not got fucking roller coasters in it, I don't want to play one of those top-down sim strategy games where you build stuff. And as long as it's not made by EA as well, because then they'll ruin it. Yeah, if I can't crash a coaster or make everyone sick on it by doing 16 loops in a row, I don't want to know about it. Jack, have you downloaded the new Mario Kart Tour for mobile yet? Do you know what? I haven't, but I've heard about 10.1 million other people are better than me and have done that exact you indeed, thing. Indeed, you are not one of the 10.1 million people that have downloaded this, making it officially the biggest launch on mobile ever. Uh, I am curious to know how many of those 10.1 million people have since deleted and uninstalled the app. Um, so, yeah, Mario Kart Tour. Nintendo on mobile is a very fascinating study case uh, to, to look at the options that they have chosen um, with how they wish to make money on this platform. Uh, Mario Kart Tour launched yesterday for mobile phones, and there is a $4.99 subscription option, which, yes, $4.99, the exact amount that you can pay and get the Arcade Apple or Google Play Plus, but that is another thing in itself. Uh, this option, priced the same as Apple Arcade, as Eurogamer points out, uh, many have pointed out, lets you unlock gold cosmetic items and grants access to the 200cc level races, 200cc being the fastest game mode. Um, it feels a particularly meagre offering for such a high recurring cost. The subscription does not grant characters, carts or gliders, the things Mario Kart Tour keeps locked behind its gacha style system. All of those microtransactions are still in the game whether you purchase a subscription or not. So not only um, do you pay $4.99 for the subscription, uh, you can also pay for uh, a whole bunch of things in game as well, for rubies they're called. Um, with the uh, most expensive package of 135 costing 64.99 you can purchase Mario Kart 8 for four quid less than that but hey here you go um multiplayer... but you need a switch as well though <laughs> well That's yeah obviously detail. yes or a uh, Wii U which you could probably get someone to pay you to take off their hands at this point yeah uh, multiplayer as it exists is simply against the times of other players but uh, synchronous multiplayer will follow in a future update. 
You can of course choose not to pay for any of the stuff, you unlock characters and gliders slowly as you play through the game, and again the subscription service locks, uh, looks completely ignorable, but among its already messy mix of various in-game currencies and unlock systems, uh, this launch day offering brings Mario Kart's mobile looking more like a slot machine than a Nintendo game. So. I uh, played a little bit of Super Mario Run, didn't play a whole lot of it, because I didn't really like Mario as an auto-runner. I certain, liked it. To a certain it degree. Was it, was, right. it was fine. Um, but, you know, if, as a platformer, there's a way I want to play Mario, and, and mobile wasn't the way to go with that. Um, I thought that the um, Fire Emblem game was actually pretty good, um, because it was pretty much what I expected from a mobile version of Fire Emblem and, and I, you know it, uh, as far as those types of games go uh, I was fine with that. Uh, I played a little bit of the Dr. Mario game but I fell off of that pretty quickly. Um, Nintendo... Animal um, Crossing? I I played Animal Crossing for like a day and then uh, just I went back to Stardew Valley and there was nothing in it for me. Yeah. Um... Unfortunately, nothing about what has been detailed here and what has been launched surprises me. Um, it, I guess it only surprises me that... No, I guess it, it does. I, it doesn't surprise me in that, you know, we've seen from the track record of Nintendo games up until this point on mobile that they're doing this. But it does surprise me that Nintendo are doing this because we've seen that uh, on the Switch, when you look at something like uh, Splatoon, for example, like the amount of content they've put into that game post-release for free, you look at the amount of post-content they put into stuff like ARMS, you look what they're doing with Smash at the moment, um, mm. though I, I can't say for certain about what is um, paid DLC and what is not, but um, this just seems very greedy. It's just the way the mobile game market kind of is, and it's it's a shame that Something like as beloved as Mario Kart. Like, I've played Mario Kart in every format possible, you know, arcade, all of the games that are available on consoles. So I know I, I do want to download it and play it, but hearing how it works, hearing the multi-currencies and hearing how sort of grindy it can be to, to unlock stuff, it, it just makes me sad. Like, that's not what a Mario Kart experience normally is, but, you know, I'll... I'll sort of save, a, a, again, a real opinion on it until I've played through a bit more of it. But, yeah, it's it's. I'll just stick to Mario Kart 8, I think, if I want to get my Mario Kart fix. And maybe it'll be something fun to play on the way to work. But if it's one of those ones that needs constant connections, that pretty much knackers me playing it on the tube, and that just really turns me off straight away. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think anyone expected uh, uh, just a premium game that you purchased for 4.99 and just unlocks everything i don't think anyone was ever expecting that but the idea of a 4.99 subscription service which i still don't really fully understand what you actually get for that uh just seems fucking sleazy and unnecessary yeah. but hey just make me pay 15 quid right one off fee and give me something as good as say mario kart 7 was for the ds yeah 3ds and i would even take it. i'd even take the um uh what was the one on um the original ds i think yeah uh what the hell was that called wasn't that just like a that was just like a, a remake of a few different tracks from a few other games wasn't it? no sorry there was one on the game boy advance that i really liked um but i can't for life me remember what it was called um but yeah you, you're World absolutely tour? Right. World tour. advanced that's tour? the one advanced tour one of those two yeah um 
Yeah. But hey, yeah. there you go. Has there ever been a bad Mario Kart game? Um, Because to me, the answer is no. I, I, I can't think of one. I mean, Mario Kart Wii is fine. I wouldn't say it's exceptional. It's some, good. Some people would argue that Mario Kart 64 is terrible, and those people are monsters. What? Who says that? I I have seen it out there. I have seen those people. Uh, mm. There is obviously the fact that the multiplayer mode on any Mario Kart game besides Mario Kart 64 is just not necessary, because uh, they usually ruin it, because block four or bust. But, um, yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. I, um, but I, to me, that's that's one of the disappointing things is that I can't, for the life of me, sit here and say anything that I've ever played with Mario Kart attached to it has been bad. So that's part of my reticence in wanting to get this game and play it because I'm like, well, if I don't really enjoy it, then that sort of busts that theory. So I'm kind of sticking my fingers in my ears and closing my eyes a little bit with this one. I, I am going to download it. And I'm actually, I'm at least going to play it and see how it feels to to play. Um, and if it is, if I enjoy it, then I'll just, you know, whip the game out every now and again, play a couple of tracks, and um, enjoy it for what it is. You know, I have absolutely no intention of putting any money money behind it. But uh, but if it if it does feel just like a substandard Mario Kart experience, then I just there is no reason for it to exist. Agreed. Um, so, new Batman game from Arkham Origins developer teased. So, yes. Uh, everyone we got be... a logo. <laughs> yeah, we got a logo, right? I know. Uh, everyone may be busy playing the six free Batman games that just got released on the Epic Game Store, which is completely insane. Uh, or possibly exploring Gotham City in Fortnite, which I didn't realise that was a thing until I saw a YouTube ad. Uh, but yet, yeah, there's more Batman gaming news for you this week. Over the past few days, Warner Bros. Montreal, the studio behind Batman Arkham uh, Origins, uh, has been hinting at a brand new Batman game, which looked like it's based on a mysterious organisation called the Court of Owls. Uh, last weekend, in its first post since 2015, the Warner Bros. Twitter account posted this video, or a video, of four symbols flashing in front of the bat signal. Which, for me personally, at first, I thought it was an Assassin's Creed game. Uh, just, there was something about, there was like a hooded figure in the, the symbol, but whatever. Um, <laughs> the symbols are posted... Assassin's in... Creed versus Batman would be interesting. I mean, sure, why not? Uh, the symbols were posted again yesterday, this time in a much clearer format, along the words, Capture the Knight. Knight being... Uh, you know, Knight of the K. Um, there's also some kind of, oh yeah, Night Night pun going on in the French bit, because there was a bit in French that I don't understand. Weird. So, I am not going to say disappointed that we've got another uh, Batman game instead of, um, well, this isn't Rocksteady, so we're curious to kind of see what Rocksteady will still do at some point in the near future. Um, but I don't know, I'm kind of done with Batman games. I kind of would like to see uh, another um, superhero franchise taking on whatever that Avengers game is or will end up being. Uh, I don't know. I, I guess it'll be a, a different Give me spin. a Sandman game. <laughs> <laughs> that will fucking blow people's heads apart, that one. I don't know. I, I guess just after Spider-Man last year, I'm, I'm very much in the mood for just different comic book uh, games at the moment and you know I really got my feel with the the Arkham series and I imagine this will well I hopefully this will be a different spin um, because I just I don't think they need to go near the Arkham format anytime soon a lot of that is down to the fact that you know so many games have have 
I'm not going to say ripped off, but been highly influenced and inspired by the Arkham system of everything from exploration and specifically the combat, which uh, a lot of games have borrowed liberally from since uh, the original Arkham Asylum game. Yeah, give me a Jessica Jones alias game in the style of Last of Us and I Will Love You Forever. That would be awesome. That, like a proper investigation style one. That is bold. You know who I'm surprised hasn't had a game is Dead Deadpool. That Deadpool has a game. Deadpool had a game on the yeah, PS3. Yeah, Deadpool has a game, but I'm surprised they haven't done another Deadpool uh, game fair. since those two movies came out. That's, that's a fair Daredevil point. is a shout. That would be an interesting... Though I um, think Daredevil would end up just being a lot like a Batman game. Honestly. How's it not a Harley Quinn game? I feel like that would... I mean, it would, and there'd be a lot of the wrong sort of person that would really want that to happen, but I, I feel like they could make something interesting out of it. Mm, possibly. Possibly. I honestly Joker I, game would the, be an interesting The take. big one obviously is is Superman and um I don't oh, know if I don't Superman know Superman sixty four. Yeah, I know. This, this is the thing. <laughs> I, I don't know if anyone wants to go anywhere near it because it's like I <laughs> I mean there are a few Superman games out there and they're all fucking terrible, um, for in their own unique ways. And I just wonder if people just, like, they just don't know how, like, it's basically, it's a game on God mode. You know, how do you make a game like that challenging, but... You can't. Yeah. <laughs> so, just give me that Jessica Jones game, and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll move on with our lives, and I'll be very happy. Or, give me a Guardians of the Galaxy game. Naturally, that is the way we should go. In our last piece of news this week... Borderlands 3 is the fastest selling game in 2K's history. Uh, it's managed to sell over 5 million copies in its first 5 days, doubling the amount Borderlands 2 sold in its first week of release and making it the fastest selling game in 2K, 2K has ever made. The Borderlands franchise has actually now generated over 1 billion in sales, uh, becoming one of the second 2K franchise to do so, which uh, kind of came as a surprise to me. Um, these aren't the only records that the game has broken, with 70% of players buying Borderlands 3 digitally in the first five days. It's also enjoyed 2K's highest percentage of digital sales for a cross-platform title. Uh, it's even become 2K's highest selling title on PC in a five-day window, which is of note given the PC version of Borderlands 3 is an Epic, store, Epic Games Store timed exclusive. Uh, which is proof that if you have something people want to play, it doesn't matter what platform you put on. Yes, and also is proof that if people want to play a game, it doesn't matter what the CEO of your company is like, uh, regardless of whatever. Um, yeah, there's uh, a lot of money that's entering Randy Pitchford's pockets at the moment, and that is a little bit sickening to think about. Yes. Um and it also is to say as well that Borderlands 3 kind of collectively, uh, from a, a games journalistic view, has been met with a bit of a, eh, sure, okay, whatever. Um, sure sounds like it's just some more Borderlands More Borderlands on. with some really shoddy writing that, um, you know, even the most juvenile 17-year-olds could probably do a better job with. Um, and yeah, nothing about the game for me personally has me mm. particularly compelled, partly because I don't have the expose, uh, the, uh, hours expense to spend 
like I once did. You know, I remember playing the original Borderlands and being up to about 4 5 a.m. in the morning with friend of the show, Chaz Ali. Um, I certainly can't be doing that anymore. So Yeah, it's. Um, I mean, it's a hell ass fun game to play. It's, it's like a wacky Mad Max style post-apocalyptic dash around with wacky weapons and it, it's fun yeah I, it, I really like that that loot shoot and you're right it does have that kind of mad max f- feel to it and um i the, the the tone and the setting i really enjoy for those first two but i just i don't think i needed the third one yeah exactly it's one of those things where if you like uh if you like borderlands and you don't necessarily want anything more than to just have more borderlands then you're going to be very happy, you know? It's a bit like ACDC. When you go through their back catalogue, every album, slight change, pretty much the same. A bit of a diminishing returns as you go deeper into the career, but it's still solid and still enjoyable. You heard it here first, Borderlands 3, a little bit like ACDC. Exactly, yeah. But the, the Brian Johnson era, we've had the Bon Scott era now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And on that um, interesting note, we shall stop the news there, and we are moving on to our uh, ongoing Final Fantasy series, where we are about to talk about uh, could be probably, arguably, the, the biggest game that we are doing on the Book Club feature so far, uh, as we're heading back to 1997, where the Final Fantasy series just exploded into the stratosphere of video game legend and lore. As uh, we talk about the infamous Final Fantasy VII. Final Fantasy VII is a 1997 role-playing video game developed by Square for the PlayStation console. And Jesus Christ, this Wikipedia entry is quite long, so I'm going to keep this very short and sweet. It is the seventh main installment in the Final Fantasy series, published in Japan by Square. It was released in other regions by Sony Computer Entertainment and became the first in the main series to see a PAL release. The game's story follows Cloud Strife, a mercenary who joins an eco-terrorist organization to stop a world-controlling megacorporation from using the planet's life essence as an energy source. Events see Cloud and his allies in pursuit of Sephiroth, a superhuman intent on destroying their planet. During the journey, Cloud builds close friendships with his party members, including Aerith Gainsborough, who holds the secret to saving their world. Deep breath we could be here for a while on this one um, partly because this is the Final Fantasy game that I actually can speak the most about because I finally Wait. got around to playing this fucking thing um, a couple of years ago on the PS Vita I think it's, it's well good mate <laughs> it's well good, there we go, boom, done I think it's fair to say that um, 
Final Fantasy VII is when you think of uh, you know the most famous games of all time. Um, this is up there. Uh, I, I think it's fair to say. I'm not sure if it is a. It's the f- most famous RPG game of all time. Yeah. I would say. Right? I'm not sure if it is a, a Mount Rushmore game, but um, I think that you can make an for argument the, for it. The original PlayStation, it's a Mount Rushmore. For game. a PlayStation, for a PlayStation game, absolutely. I, I think it's fair to say it's a Mount Rushmore game. Nintendo uh, done fucked up by letting this go they yeah, must have been we, absolutely fuming should we start there because like where the fuck do you even start with this thing but we'll start there um for anyone listening to this you probably already know but we'll give kind of a brief summary uh the final fantasy series up until this point was uh exclusively as far as i'm aware on uh the nintendo system or nintendo platforms across the the board um the thing that um, had always been an issue with Final Fantasy games is there was always content having to be cut because they were on wrong cartridges. And clearly when they were getting around to the development of Final Fantasy 7, they had uh, a kind of demo in place that they were using to kind of see Final Fantasy in, in the 3D format and uh, you know they had a battle system in place that they were showing off and it was incredibly impressive for the time. Uh, but it was also incredibly demanding um, to process this, and there was clearly no way that they were going to be able to put this on the at the time named Ultra 64, which would end up becoming the Nintendo 64, because that was sticking to the cartridge-based system. So um, they just got to the point where they were like, right, fuck this, we're going over to the Sony PlayStation, it's using the CD-ROM, uh, that just gives us so much more room to work with. Well, yeah, exactly. And I think it was, you know, uh, again, to delve a little deeper to open the kimono a little bit more. There was a very brief period when Nintendo and Sony nearly worked together, right? They did, yes. Uh, That was on a CD console. Yeah. So if I remember, um, Nintendo were working, I want to say, with Philips. Um, because they were going to make a, a CD add-on for the Super, Super Nintendo, I want to say, uh, and that fell through, so um, Philips went away and made the Philips CDI, which is, oh boy, that thing is a fucking hot mess. Um, if you want to see a bad Mario game and a bad Zelda game, have a look <laughs> at the Philips CDI. Uh, but yeah, after that, Sony and Nintendo, for a little while, they were working on coming up with something, and that fell through, and from that, we ended up with the Sony PlayStation. Uh, I thought they dicked uh, Sony over to go with Philips. I can't remember the timeline exactly, but uh, all we know is at the end of it, Sony went, you know what, fuck this, we'll just do it ourselves. And as they say, the rest is history. Yeah, there are actually in existence, I think it's one or two Nintendo Playstations. Uh, and there's actually a guy that has one. If you go on YouTube, that like you can see... That the guy who has one because whatever i think someone in his family or him in particular was working around this time in development of this thing and it is it is real weird to look at like a, a playstation nintendo hybrid thing that looks like it was actually made by somebody for like a, a dt class or something but it, it it's real guys it's just yeah just just google nintendo playstation and have a look at it right it looks like something that you know science should not have allowed to exist and i just i try to wonder what exactly a final fantasy 7 on the nintendo 64 would have looked like and i mean we would have had maybe half of the first cd of the game if that probably not even that 
Um, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's weird, isn't it? Because it very much turned into, as you've mentioned before, when we've talked about Final Fantasies very briefly, like, it was always like a Zelda versus Final Fantasy conversation in amongst our friends group. And I was obviously very, very pro Final Fantasy. Um, and you were very pro Zelda. And, you know, Zelda, Majora's Mask and um, Ocarina of Time, even though they're quite like rudimentary, they both look fantastic on the M64. So it, they could have made it work. We just wouldn't have got the FMV sequences. And it, the game art direction would never have been at the same level that it eventually became well on the PlayStation. i mean that and um the the music like the 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 quality oh. of the music would have been uh, horrendous yeah the music on this game like if you compare it to the other uh i mean first of all again shout out to absolute another legend theme with this series musical genius I, I can't say enough good stuff about him and I, I will repeat that every time we touch something that he's composed. But on this they've used a bit more like a rudimentary instruments and it very much, like whereas if you move on further down the line, it, it started becoming more genuine compositions. But this still sounds a lot like a video game soundtrack uh, if you know what I mean in terms of uh, instruments used and the sound effects achieved within game um and it wasn't really till eight and onwards that he just went stratospheric with orchestral layers and all sorts of beautiful things but even within that there's there's a lot of memorable bits of music within the game um so they did manage to edge out and potentially just because they might have been feeling like we're composing this to be on a nintendo and it wasn't till really I think into the development that they realized that they were getting to make this on a CD drive. So I think they just, it's kind of like when you first get uh, like a a simple like garage band or something like that, and you go on and just listen to all the sort of default sounds that you can make MIDI music with, because it has that sort of MIDI music feel, but obviously with like brilliant composition. I I don't know if you agree with that so much, but yeah, I mean, the thing with me um, that is remarkable about, the Final Fantasy VII soundtrack and composition as a whole is that, like, even for me, because I didn't play the game until uh, I would say like to 2012. Even for me, when I hear that soundtrack now, I get an incredible like wave of nostalgia, which really would only be um, applicable for anyone that played the game at the time. But it's such a powerful soundtrack that I can hear it today, and I'm immediately like transported back to that game at that specific moment in time um and there are very few games that will do that for me and again you know i'm not someone who is uh you know invested in the final fantasy series or has any real like emotional connection to it but i do i do get that connection that i get from this game specifically and i will hear any part of this game and just i'm taken back to it and and that just speaks to how powerful and how well crafted uh this soundtrack is Agreed. Should we um should we talk about some of the characters? Who are your favourites in, in Final Fantasy Seven? Um, so I <laughs> I think it would go without saying uh, that actually I before I talk about the characters that I hate uh, that I like, I'm going to talk. Uh, I think I want to talk about Cloud first. I want to get him out of the way um, because Kay. you know. Cosplayers around the world rejoice Cloud Strife exists. Yeah. 
I mean, the sword is gigantic. It, it is so gigantic. So that must be a lot of fun to be carrying around. And I guess this is going to be uh, an expansion of my... One of my critiques that I have of this game is that Final Fantasy VII is somewhat melodramatic uh, in a way that... Maybe... <laughs> my word, and you haven't even played Final Fantasy VIII yet. Yeah, I know, right? I know, right? I can't wait to, to jump on that fucking thing. <laughs> that makes this game look, like, deadly serious. Yeah, um... There is a lot of conversation and narrative that goes on between Cloud and Sephiroth, um, who will fucking get to him as well, that I guess maybe the 24, 25-year-old me at the time just found fucking tedious, that the 16, 17-year-old me may have appreciated in, in a way because I was at the time also as a teenager very melodramatic and maybe yeah, he's I'm, very angsty he, he the, the angst is it is unfiltered you know this pure and concentrated fucking teenage angst seven and, and eight in particular are the angstiest of the final fantasies like nine i think your character is a bit more of a sort of a jokester uh, and you know Titus in 10 he, he, even though he's had some tough times he always kind of puts a positive slant on everything but Cloud is just uh, man he's pissed off a lot of the time <laughs> yeah there's a lot of moping there's a lot of like who am I what am I doing uh, and so he is a character I I bounced off of pretty quickly but um, it goes without saying that Barrett is a character who not only is he just He's very in your face and very, um, very loud and very just very characterful. But up until this point, um, from my experience of playing Final Fantasy games and from looking back at the past games that I hadn't played, there wasn't really a character like him that you would play. You know, his language was very colourful for a start, and that was purely down to the restrictions placed on the fact that uh, Final Fantasy games were Nintendo. So, you know, they had an opportunity opportunity here on the PlayStation to do something a little bit different. And, you know, as a character, and the, the, the edge that this character has is is completely different to anything that they've had at this point, if you would agree with me or not. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, oh, yeah, it, it, it just feels like an instant departure. If you move from 6... Uh, which was like three years earlier on the Super Nintendo to this, you just it, it blows your mind. It is, it's a it's a huge leap. Yeah, um, and from there, uh, you know, sure, like the character of Aerith and her her place in the story and what she does and what she represents, um, and and the, the kind of pure goodness of her as a person uh, is is. It shows hope and optimism in a world that is pretty nihilistic and hopeless at points. Uh, she is that kind of real ray of light, and I think that's why, um, for a number of reasons, players kind of uh, gamers resonate to her and her uh, spoiler alert death um, is as impactful as it is because of just how hopeful her character is. It's just one of those things that you don't really see coming as well, like that whole. I mean, like we'll get into it. Uh, we can get into it now, I guess. Sure. Like, that why whole, not? That, why the that whole not? death death scene where she's just there praying by the water, and Sephiroth just appears behind her and just pierces all the way through it with a sword. Like that is heartbreaking. And this is a point where you needed to change the disc in the game as well. And you're like, what the f- has just happened? Like I've just seen one of the main characters in the game, and as you say, like 
a representative for what is a pretty cynical and horrible world that's corrupted by technology and people literally like bleeding the planet dry i mean i can't think of any real world examples that they would have come up with to have inspiration for this game at a mark but seriously like it just it blew my mind when i was a kid i couldn't believe it because this is a point where i'm not looking at a lot of things where like main characters are falling down in movies and stuff up to this point this game made 97 so i probably was like 10 or 11 when i first played this everything i'm watching in films is, is relatively happy and you know the only down note really that i can remember up to this point in my life was probably at the end of empire strikes back you know when luke had his hand cut off and shit so this is a big landmark moment in this game and it's just done so well like with with the, the sword like appearing through her from behind and stuff and even though like the graphics aren't amazing and there's like no massive like spurt of blood kill bill style or anything it's just wow like i assume when you went into it mark you knew it was going to happen yeah i it's it's impossible to uh avoid you know that uh part of the story it is is one of the more infamous parts of um gaming cinematography i guess and really like for the time it was that and it was pretty much the whole of the original Metal Gear Solid that really took gaming from being this uh, just thing that you manipulate uh, in, a, in a gaming space and actually presented it a little bit more like a film, you know, the, yeah. and as you mentioned there, the idea that you have this big crescendo, this big build up to this point where she dies and that's the moment where you have to turn over the disc, you know, it's a real like gut punch in a way that um, you would kind of get maybe like in, in an MCU film where you have the end of a particular film where you stop and you have to wait to get on to the next film. Uh, and obviously, with an MCU film, you have to wait six months or whatever for the next part. And here you can just jump onto the next disc. But there is this real like clean break between the end of what happens here and then you moving on to the next part of, of the story. Yeah, it, it, and you're right. The, I think the PlayStation really allows um, the likes of Yoshinori Kataze, the director of this game, and Kojima to be these guys who want to make video games more cinematic. They've been stuck in this sort of pixels and 16-bit nickel and dime kind of um, paradigms for what they can do with their video games. And all of a sudden, Sony comes along with a system and they can do something like this. And yeah, just a... It is. It's very much the end of the um, Infinity War Part 1 where everyone fades away and you're like, what the hell? How are we going to get these people back? Like, I remember playing the first part of the next disc and just thinking, well, she's got to come back, hasn't she? Like, you can't just be killing off Aerith. This is just crazy. Because at that point, you think, like, you know, her and Cloud, like, is going to be a love story and they're going to end up together, etc., etc. And it just it all goes completely tits up at that point. Uh, and I also, I, I guess the um, the other side of the coin in terms of the melodrama, uh, but being done in a way that I found effective, I quite like the character of of Vincent Valentine. Uh, I guess he kind of reminds me a lot of an oh. anime character that I actually would watch. Yeah. I was going to say, like he is. I mean, the fact that when you find him, he's like asleep in a coffin. That's, that's just pretty badass. Cool. Yeah, it, it, he's just really super super cool. Like. You're right, he is straight out of an anime, and he's the sort of guy where 
I feel like if this was uh, coming out now, he would be the most cosplayed guy of the lot because the whole sort of sort of like half ninja, um, half you know, goth vampire kind of look that he has going on. It's just yeah, it, it, it's a cosplayer's delight. Uh, what about you? Any any additional characters you want to? Oh, I love Barrett. <laughs> Come on. Barrett is an absolute lad, isn't he? At the end of the day, for a start, he has a whole gun on his arm. And he's just, you know, like you mentioned, you have your issues with Cloud and the way Cloud is. Barrett is having none of Cloud throughout this whole game. <laughs> he takes literally zero from Cloud. He will put him straight at every opportunity. And I just feel like he's a sort of like, he's like one of the moral compasses of the whole thing. That, that is being built on you've got cloud you know struggling with his identity a, a cognitive dissonance of trying to understand what the world is at large while you know dealing with all his emotions and stuff and then you've got barry who's just like oh fuck this we're fighting we disagree with what these people are trying to do to our planet and yeah it is a it, it it's just a real everyman feel that that i love about it and you just the first thing you see him like coming off the train and he's tripping over and you just immediately fall in love with this guy, the the real sort of everyman epicenter of, of Final Fantasy VII. Uh, much love, Barrett. I guess one thing um, I think we should talk about as well is is the overall story. Um, now, I didn't realise at the time <clears throat> when I actually played through the game myself that, like, for me, my favourite game of all time is is Majora's Mask. Uh, which right. has this incredibly dark, nihilistic tone to it, almost to points. And I didn't realise how much Final Fantasy VII kind of has in common with it, um, in terms of just this destructive story, I guess. Uh, and just, you know, the, the, the fate of the planet is um, at hand. Which, alright, fair enough, we've seen in other games and, and other stories and other forms of media, but... Um, it really strikes a, a similar tone in just the the pure nihilism of it, I guess, at hand. Uh, and I think that, you know, again, the, the death of Aerith kind of plays a part in that, that here's this bright beacon of hope that gets taken away from us. Um, and, you know, she plays a part later on. But, um, you know, for you, like, how much does the, the story matter in Final Fantasy VII? And how much does that resonate with you? I think the story resonates hugely in in all final fantasy games i think one of my favorite final fantasy games to play is final fantasy 12 right don't really care about the story therefore when i think of it i just think that's a fun game to play and i'm not actually playing through it because i enjoy what's going on final fantasy 7 like it has a genuine there's a genuine cause that you're fighting against you're immediately like rallying against a big evil corporation and i think I don't know, I guess if you're like a little bit left-leaning straight away, you're like, yeah, man, fight the power, and you're immediately getting on board. And it, the second that you see Sephiroth murder Aerith, you're like, right, no matter what it takes, I'm taking this guy down. And this, the satisfaction of like playing through the game and expanding your party and getting to the point where you take out Meteor and stuff and... It, it's a genuine sort of rage against the machine of, 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 of trying to eliminate humanity in in a sort of mass, corporatized, cynical way. Um, and 
yeah, it, it matters. Like it, it, the characters, I feel like aren't maybe as relatable, and that's what I really liked about Final Fantasy VIII. But the story itself um, is a great and and compelling kind of story, and uh, and even though it's like there's not a whole lot of particular originality to it like it very much does feel like it is heavily influenced by those sort of early 90s japanese anime and there's like a real sense of you know humanity versus technology wouldn't you say in a lot of in in a lot of anime and manga stuff uh there's like there's the obsession with kind of like ancient machinery and 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 what it actually means to be human and have a life force about you and a lot of the themes of that are present in this game um what do you think of the story on the whole mark yeah i mean i'd say for this like there are elements of the story that are um very much relevant in 2019 and i i don't know if that's like always a sign of what a good story is that it can be become more relevant Uh, i think that speaks more to just how fucked up we are in 2019 um but like the the overall story about the the fate of the planet and that sort of stuff again it's been done elsewhere but it does a good job of raising the stakes throughout the uh throughout the story um you know, it does the, the 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 plot beats of it gives you this character who doesn't really know who he is and he needs to find out who he is. Um, and you kind of have this really with a few characters and, and you have this this struggle between Cloud and Sephiroth and, and their stories and how they're intertwined with each other. And I guess we can get on to, to Sephiroth here. And, um, one of the more infamous um, antagonists in video games. But... My issue I've always had with with Sephiroth is he really is just he's a bit of a mummy's boy. He's just a bit of a bitch who has mummy boy issues. Um, you know. Yeah, I mean it's a it's a simplification, but it it, it is it is very much it's a simplification. thoroughly accurate. Yes. Uh, and, and coming off of the back of Kefka, who is by far my one of my favorite antagonists in yeah. in video he's games. He's a homicidal maniac, Kefka. and he's a clown. And not only that, he the thing that he sets out to do, he does. And I could appreciate that. You know, I appreciate a bad guy who actually manages to do the thing that he wants to do. Uh, and I feel feel that... Like, I mentioned that Cloud is where the the melodrama is, is kind of up front and centre. But Sephiroth is really where the melodrama gets played up. Because, you know, I just want to see a bad guy do bad shit. And he has these moments where he does that. But also, there are times he where... He does take out a whole village at He one does point, take so. out a whole village. There is, yes, that's the, the Nibelhelm incident. Is that what it is? Yeah. Yeah. He does do that. He is obviously an evil bastard. But at the same time, there is the... I, I don't know whether it's... A, uh, in an attempt to make him like an anti-hero or make him more relatable, but there, there's just a lot of bitching and whining and moaning, and his motives for destroying stuff is the fact that it's like, oh, who's my mum? Oh, who am I? And it, it's it's the one part of the game uh, from the the narrative aspect that I I'm not gonna say it was cliched, but it just what you have there as for what ends up being the the backdrop for you know the earth potentially being destroyed i don't know it's the, the these two very kind of polarizing um plot points i guess um i don't know like separate for you do you think he's an effective antagonist in in the grand scheme of uh final fantasy antagonist like where does he stand for you 
Yeah, I mean, he's... I think it's almost like his infamy kind of carries him above everyone. And I do think so much of it is just the the things that, you know, even the, the smaller things. Because, like, at some point, like, he is basically coming towards destroying half of the fucking solar system. But is he more infamous for stabbing Eric? Like, you've got a guy that on a, on a massive epic scale is trying to just destroy life as we know it. Yes, there are the mummy issues, as we mentioned. But, you know, you, you feel like the rage against the machine of trying to stop him. But then the, the smaller incidents of him, like, taking the village out and, and him killing Aerith seem to be more... Because it's a personal thing straight away. There's not... The, the thing that I like that they blend about Sephiroth is that he has the sort of extinction-level event um, opportunities, but also is very happy to inflict pain directly upon the party and the people just really for his own edification. So he is all powerful as well, but will fuck with you on a macro level. So to me, that makes him a good antagonist because if you can't necessarily buy into the, Oh my God, all powerful person is trying to destroy X and you've seen it a million times at the end of the day, he takes out Aerith and he's, he's burning down villages and that that you can, on a very ground, straight in front of your face level, you can hate him for that. So I think, despite your issues of him as, as a character, and again, I think the, the whole game is kind of centred around him and, and Cloud's struggle for identity and the, what they've done um, with them and their past and their links to the soldier program, all of that sort of stuff. Uh, you, you're, he's the contrast. So Cloud, he's ashamed of his past, but he isn't kind of, he's not trying to um, act out and he's not using all of his rage in a sort of world-ending fashion, but Sephiroth is. So the contrast between the two characters is good. And the antagonism on both a, a micro and massive level is also very good from Sephiroth. So I, I think whether or not you like him or not, you're not actually really meant to like him anyway. But oh, uh, I think I think he works as as, as an antagonist. I, I think I enjoy I think I enjoy Kefka and like him wanting to destroy the world it, it, because it's very much like it's the Joker mentality of just, he wants to do it because he just wants to see the world burn, where with yeah. uh, Sephiroth there is just, you know, he wants to destroy the world so he can take the life force and become like a god. So, you know, it, the, the motives are different, but I don't know, I guess I just, there's a, a pure distilled evilness about Kefka that I always appreciate, yeah. I guess. But, no, I take your points on, on board as well. Um one of my main issues I have with the game, and uh, you know, I don't want to just talk about all the bad stuff, but it is something that I really noticed when I was playing through the game, um, I say the first time, the only time, and I'm curious to see how they will handle this in the upcoming remake, which is something we can discuss as well. The pacing of the game is a bit uneven for me. Um, okay. Like, you spend a lot of time in Midgar, and you get to the point where you're like, is Midgar what this game is? And then, But it so, isn't. No, obviously it's not. But, Which makes it all the more satisfying when you finally get out. It is, yeah. But I do feel that 
you spend so much time in Midgar that the game for me becomes like there's Midgar and then there's the rest of the game. And which isn't exactly true, but um, when I think back to it in my mind now, it, it really does feel like that. And um, I feel that makes the game feel a little bit uneven and it's something that I don't get with other Final Fantasy games where there's just there's an even spread of the worlds that you explore and the things and the, the places that you just visit. Where um, and obviously Midgar is such a crucial plot point and, and crucial part of what Final Fantasy VII is, so I can't take that away from it. But yeah, it it's a make... swollen industrial behemoth that's meant to feel completely overwhelming, and it's meant to be satisfying when you finally break out of it. I think. Yeah, I just I'm curious to see if they if they stick so rigidly to that with Midgar, and obviously they're not going to. Um deviate too far from the plot and the story but i wonder how they'll handle that pacing side of stuff i imagine that we'll probably because of the way that these um this remake is going to be split into different chapters that the first chapter will probably just be midgar anyway yeah we didn't really return after this in final fantasy terms we didn't really return to too many midgar like environments like final fantasy 13 had a little bit of it final fantasy 10 teased a midgar like environment before destroying it with a giant water monster so like you the thing about it is when they do remake it it was it's still going to feel fresh from a final fantasy perspective i think um like final fantasy 15 as well like your the world that you live in looks very much like Midgar, but you never really get to live in it because it's destroyed as well. Like so it's another kind of, you know, cataclysmic event. So I, I think that I'm gonna very much enjoy uh living in a remastered Midgar just to see what they can actually do with it with an, with a bit more of scale about it and make it feel as big and daunting and, and as intimidating as it was. And it's gonna be a massive part. Uh, you imagine if they do chapterize it it will probably be the first and maybe second chapters but i don't know we don't really know at this point do we exactly how many chapters of that game there's going to be but i always liked um the thing here that you've complained about so i can't really <laughs> i can't really say yeah and uh, again i don't much. want to come from this uh, as just me being the one here to come and bitch and complain but um i think that it would be easy for us just to come here and just say, here all the good things about Final Fantasy VII. Um, and we, you know, we come at like this game and this series as a whole from two very different um, angles. And yes, I am the one that doesn't enjoy JRPGs for a start. Uh, so I, you know, I just I want to be able to give um, the faults and the feelings that I had at the time that I, I imagine I would still hold now if I was to play the game again. And you know, mm. I'm absolutely going to play the remaster, and I'm curious to see what my experiences that i had at the time as i'm sure everyone who played final fantasy 7 will have with the remaster and i guess um to get close to wrapping this up like what are your thoughts about oh. the remaster from oh unless you had anything else you wanted to mention first. i mean oh there are a couple of things okay. i want to mention okay. uh chocobo fun uh, chocobo breeding is fun as hell um and playing around in golden saucer and the chocobo racing within golden saucer like the golden saucer music there's a few songs from Final Fantasy that when I hear them, they put a massive smile on my face. Balam Garden from Final Fantasy VIII, Final Fantasy X, like the main, the main uh, Tazanakan piano theme, like will put a tear in my eye, but make me get emotional in that way. For Final Fantasy VII, the one that always just makes me immediately happy is hearing the Golden Saucer theme and knowing that I'm going to be walking around 
this like giant garish arcade like situation i'm going to be racing chocobos i'm going to be like snowboarding down hills it's just it's i think it's one of the most fun uh cool ways to uh to to put like some side questing in a game within a within something that they have a bit more control over like you're not having to go to different parts of the world to play all the mini games and stuff that are in the golden saucer and the chocobo breeding is ultimately how you end up getting to get knights of the round um knights of the round fucking awesome you know when the first time you use knights of the round mark were you just like mind blown just the level of ultimate epic destruction this is probably of all like the summons in all of the final fantasy games the one that is most memorable to me is knights of the round and just i mean i just went and made a cup of tea yeah it takes forever like when you're in a battle and you cast triple and like knights of the round you might as well just go get a sandwich or something because it's going to take forever but whatever it is you're fighting is going to sort of feel the full force and the full brunt of that attack and uh yeah I, I, the materia in this game is is a lot more streamlined and simple to use you know you're picking basically you're picking your summons up off the ground in places like you're not having to defeat anybody you're not having to use a weird junction system or anything like that you just you you get the material and you can use it straight away so that from a pick up and playability in terms of using attacks and stuff in this game i think is very good and user friendly right yeah and i think that's one of the things that I'm not sure if it'll have me concerned about some of the other games that I haven't played yet, but um, from everything I've ever read about Final Fantasy VII and how it compares to some of the other games in the series, it definitely does have a little bit more of a streamlined approach, which is good, because I don't like too many moving parts, certainly yeah. in stuff like JRPGs, and I don't actually like being given too much choice about... I mean, Pokemon has always been the exception, but I don't like being given all these characters and all these different things to do, and I was like, just give me a, a you know, as simple a setup as possible... Um, mm-hmm. and the the way that the game works with um, that and you know how you can uh, apply what the, the uh, material uh, and how yeah. you apply them like it's it's pretty it's streamlined enough that even if you are a complete novice when it comes to JRPGs like it's it's not too difficult to wrap your head around exactly I think unintentionally the brilliant aspect of this game is that that it's a very very good intro to jrpgs and a very very good intro to final fantasy games even if they didn't necessarily design it that way um because it's the first game on on playstation it's really the first final fantasy game that like widely sold in the us and europe or had like did like a big punchy number um and that combined with the ease of use was perfect to, to have it as most people's first jrpg uh red 13 is a is a good is a good lad <laughs> we were talking about characters before and i didn't even get to mention him like uh yeah so you get like a lot of the final fantasies where of, of like up to this point you know you've been sprites and this thing that thing and you're now like yeah i'm just like a sort of lion dog that's red uh and is fucking awesome uh like so spoilers but like at the end of the game where you see like red 13 and it's just chilling with a couple of his cubs like way way off in the future what a great way to end uh he was always one of my favorites all throughout the game uh yeah that those are the the little nuggets that i had left on my list of notes that i wanted to talk about 
if there's anything else you want to talk about before we move on to talking about the remake and potentially wrapping it up. Yeah, is there anything that's else? Uh, the last thing for me, uh, for us to to discuss yeah. is the upcoming remaster. Um, from everything you've seen so far, like for me, very much on the outside looking in, it looks like they've taken the the core ideas of Final Fantasy VII and thrown in and bought it on the Final Fantasy XV engine. Um, exactly like now, that. I don't know how Final Fantasy 15 plays if it's you know in terms of its combat it's good but I'm very yeah. curious to see what that style of gameplay and battle mechanics is going to be like and how that's going to change the pacing of the game in Final Fantasy 7. Yeah, I liked it. Um it's kind of like a, a cross between a free roaming and and a real-time battle situation Was it a where... bit like um, Nino Kuni because that did a kind of turn-based but a little um... yeah it's it's more it's more it's it's more um it's closer to the Final Fantasy 15 Final Fantasy 12 sort of hybrid and it looks like a little bit of the Final Fantasy 13 of like hitting things in and at, at the right time and uh, just from some of the, the bits and pieces that I've seen so it's it's got the modern Final Fantasy battle take. Like you're not going to be called into random encounters like you were in Final Fantasy VII, or so it seems. The original that is, or so it seems so far. So, yeah, I can only really wildly speculate, but I mean, it looks beautiful, and I quite enjoyed playing through Final Fantasy XV, even though I think it's become a bit. Uh, maligned since and you know when i rethink about the story and that i kind of put a bit of distance between myself and the game and realized i didn't think it was that great however it was fun to play at the time so yeah if you couple that with actual great story and final fantasy 7 then yeah very very excited and i think morbid curiosity will probably lead you towards a purchase as well so oh yeah i definitely want to be looking I definitely want to play that when it comes out. Um, what do you think of them breaking up the game into... You know, I, I, I imagine that the split episodes will follow the format of the, the CDs. Um, yeah. Are you surprised by that? Do you think that it is purely just like they want to get the Midgar section out as soon as possible just to shut everyone up? Like, what, what do you think is the, the reasoning behind it? Mm. I think it's probably just that when they started doing it they realized the sheer scale of uh of what it was to remake it in a modern context because like for instance the initial scene that starts this game of like the futuristic looking train pulling up in midgar which is one of my favorite starts to any game ever really and it just immediately draws you straight into the world like i remember they remade it for a tech demo for the ps3 years ago and everybody went crazy but then to then do it again and then have see that again and like with modern graphics and stuff uh, oh yeah it looks incredible but knowing that because you're doing it in this format you have to flesh it out so so much more and add so much more content in there to to pull the game together and make the battles work and stuff. Honestly, I hope they've done it for the right reasons. And the right reasons being they just want to make a perfect and awesome game that does justice to everyone's sort of childhood memories of how much they enjoyed playing through the first game. I hope there's no cynicism of wanting to take people's money in episodic format. I just hope they're like 
slowly they realised how much effort they were going to have to put into it and they've just been grinding away and getting it done basically alright let's uh, let's round this bad boy up Jack give me your elevator pitch of Final Fantasy 7 spiky head man with giant sword tries to stop evil corporation draining life force from the globe with added good boy and on that spectacular note um yeah that is the end of this week's edition of link to the cast um dave ryan should hopefully be back with us uh, next week as he is currently getting his fucking fourth master's degree or something that boy just never stops um, he's an educated man he is an, he's a well-educated man uh, we have a bunch of different places you can, uh, different bunch of different podcasts you can listen to. Uh, none of them that we've done in a while, um, but we have some ideas in the pipeline, so keep an eye out for them. Um, but yeah, I guess that should wrap us up nicely. Uh, Jack, do you have any final thoughts before we head out of here? Um, I love Reese James. 